This episode of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod is brought to you by KPMG. Despite growth in renewables, overall emissions are up. What does this mean for businesses and the race to net zero? At KPMG, the team has deep experience in the energy industry across each discipline necessary to help your business prepare for the future. Visit the KPMG website or click on the link in today's show notes to learn more. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon, and as many of you know, I not only host this podcast, but I also edit a daily newsletter called the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. I mention this because one thing I have noticed in recent months is that listeners of this podcast and readers of that newsletter really like stories about policy guidance that's related to the Inflation Reduction Act. They say the devil is in the details. And since most of that news and information focuses on tax guidance coming out of the U.S. government, there are certainly plenty of details. So I get it. It's popular news because it's important, and it's also potentially lucrative. And do you want to know another topic that people in the energy sector like to read and hear about? Clean hydrogen. It's true. I've got the data. So with that in mind, today's guest is perfect, because he's going to talk about tax guidance related to hydrogen. Adi Bashyam is a hydrogen analyst for Bloomberg Neff. He's here to talk about the guidance that pertains to hydrogen that's coming down the pipeline from the IRS and the Treasury Department. Amid furious lobbying efforts, the release of this guidance has already been delayed once. And as Adi wrote in a recent BNEF article, the guidance will influence how and where hydrogen is produced for years. So it's a big deal. That also means it's important for the IRS and the Treasury Department to get it right. With potentially hundreds of billions of dollars on the line, Adi is here to share what he describes as a framework that should be followed for thoughtfully crafting and effectively implementing the hydrogen piece of the Inflation Reduction Act. If you haven't had a chance to check out the previous episode of this podcast, go ahead and give it a listen. It featured Lauren Collins and Michael Joyce from the law firm of Vincent and Elkins. As the title of the episode suggests, we spent some time talking about Climate Week, which by now, of course, has come and gone. But right about the 10-minute mark of that show, we pivoted to highlight the one-year anniversary of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, and we went on to spend an informative half hour dissecting many of the tax aspects of the IRA. Check it out if you want to hear how the IRA is changing the renewable landscape as we ease into the second year of its implementation. Looking ahead, We've got some great episodes on the schedule coming up. We'll delve into topics like sustainable aviation fuel, and of course, have a couple of shows dedicated to COP28 when that event comes along in a couple of months. So there's lots of great stuff on the way for this podcast, but right now, let's hear some great insights about what to expect from hydrogen guidance from Adi Bashyam at Bloomberg Neff. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. My guest is Adi Bashyam, Hydrogen Analyst at Bloomberg. Adi, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Obviously, those who follow the hydrogen sector know we're kind of waiting on some guidance from the Treasury Department and the IRS here in the U.S. You and the team at BNF recently put out a paper about what to either expect from that or what would be ideal. So I want to talk about that with you today, but let's just kind of set the table for all of our listeners. What 
is the guidance going to be pertained to and what are we expecting? This is guidance on the 45B hydrogen tax credit, a crucial guidance that I think the whole sector is waiting on because the tax credit that is being offered is quite lucrative. It'll offer about $3 per kilogram hydrogen, which we think at BNF, if you you look at our cost projections by the end of the decade uh, with $3 per kilograms over 10 years in subsidy, uh, most green hydrogen projects using an electrolyzer will be cost effective and cost comparable to fossil hydrogen. So the tax credit itself is extremely lucrative. Every company that applies to it will get a tax credit because there's no funding cap on the tax credit itself. Now, the big question is, how can you apply and qualify for the tax credit? And the way the tax credit is set up is it is set up by emissions thresholds. So the lowest emissions threshold gets you the highest tax credit, um, and that's up to $3 per kilogram. And the question on developers' minds is now, how do we qualify for this tax credit and get this highest tax credit of $3 per kilogram? And that's where crucial guidance is upcoming from the Treasury Department on how these emissions thresholds can be met. And there's a number of factors that are under discussion, but importantly, I think uh, what is important to say, this guidance was expected on August 16th. There's a lot of uh, lobbying efforts on both sides for strict and uh, looser guidance. And this debate has become really contentious now on how this guidance should look like. And we believe it will determine like billions in subsidies giving into the sector and how that will affect emissions associated with these subsidies. So what does that timeline look like right now? I know you mentioned it was kind of expected in August. We're obviously kind of maybe staring at a government shutdown. I'm not trying to date this podcast, but we're recording on Thursday, September 28th, and the U.S. government is yet again facing the prospect of a government shutdown. So if there isn't a government shutdown, which could obviously last for who knows how long, what's the timeline look for like for when this guidance might come out? Yeah, that's anyone's guess, really. Uh, as I said, original date was August 16th. Uh, that has passed. Uh, then there was rumors that it will come out in October. Now, with the looming go- government shutdown, we have heard suggestions directly from John Podesta that the shutdown itself would delay uh, issuance of the guidance, which would mean that the guidance is not coming out for the next month or two, maybe. Uh, maybe not until the end of the year, but that's a really speculation. Uh, and we have to see how far the Treasury is in informing this guidance. And there's still companies like lobbying. So for the purposes of this conversation, you know, how are we defining clean energy? Because, you know, there's all kinds of colors out there. So is that even been defined yet? Absolutely. Uh, as it pertains to hydrogen specifically, um, there's really two ways to decarbonize the production of, of hydrogen and call that clean hydrogen. The easiest or the simplest way is to just add carbon capture and storage to the existing fossil hydrogen plant. So typically today, hydrogen is produced from natural gas. And you can capture the emissions from that and capture about 90, 95% of the emissions and store them on the ground. That's what we call blue hydrogen in in the industry. The slightly more complicated and less mature way to do this is called green hydrogen, which is where we use water as the fuel source, where we're splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen under the use of electricity in a machine called an electrolyzer, right? And that's where the electricity source really needs to come from renewables, solar, wind, hydro, or any other form of low carbon energy like nuclear uh, to be able to call that hydrogen clean. Okay. And I know you touched on it before, but what's at stake here in terms of overall dollars? I mean, you said could potentially be almost limitless, but what kind of range are we speaking about here? We try to estimate this at Bloomberg NEF. Um, Because the tax credit is uncapped, it is hard to estimate a final number. But if you assume that all announced green hydrogen projects in the U.S. will try to apply for the tax credit and get it, right, which is about 2 million metric tons of hydrogen supply or so on the, on the green side, 
I think that alone will require about $70 billion in tax credits given out between now and the 2032 deadline for the tax credit. And that's probably an underestimate, because if you look at demand for hydrogen in the U.S. today, which is more at about 10 millimetric tons, to decarbonize all of that with just green hydrogen would probably require something like $300 billion in tax credits given out, almost as big as the IRA um, package itself, right? So that just goes to show you how much money is involved here. You mentioned there's some lobbying going on. What does that landscape look like? Is it kind of the usual players for the usual positions or is it a little more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, in some aspects it is. The usual players arguing for laxer rules and then environmental groups uh, arguing for more stricter rules. But actually, if you look at this in more detail, there are many companies who are, uh, who are in favor of very strict requirements on, on these three criteria. So companies like Air Products, which is the largest hydrogen producer today and has already taken investment decision on very large clean hydrogen projects globally, is arguing for a relatively strict requirements for hydrogen production in the U.S. to get the tax credit. There is a startup called Electric Hydrogen, which is selling like very large electrolyzers, also arguing for very strict requirements on uh, hydrogen production. On the other side of the coin, there there's companies like Plug Power, big electrolyzer manufacturer, which has opposed all um, requirements for hydrogen production, companies like BP and, uh, and Chevron and so on, which also oppose strict requirements, obviously because this will raise costs to some extent. But it is not as clear cut as just environmental groups arguing for very strict requirements and industry being completely opposed to it. So in a way, there's a lot more nuances within that. Okay. And you mentioned the 45V tax credit before. So let's dive a little deeper on that. What does that entail? What are some of the criteria for even meeting that tax credit? Yeah, the 45V tax credit is a tax credit that is a, it's, it's, uh, there's an investment tax credit, but the more interesting one is probably the production tax credit, where there's a subsidy offered per kilogram of hydrogen produced. And that stacks up all the way up to $3 per kilogram. And to reach $3 per kilogram, uh, there's certain emissions tier that you need to reach. And the lowest emissions tier for $3 is less CO2 emissions, less than 0.45 kilograms. CO2 per kilogram hydrogen over the life cycle of, of the hydrogen itself. Uh, and that's really hard to meet. So far, we only know that much, that it's a life cycle uh, estimation and that it's 0.45 or lower to get $3 per kilogram. Now we need more criteria to come in, and that's where Treasury guidance will come in on how these criteria will be defined. Because there's problems with just setting an emissions threshold that we can talk about in more detail. We'll be right back. Energy demand is growing, and while significant progress has been made in developing renewables, fossil fuels remain the dominant sources of energy globally. What does this mean for the future of energy? The experts at KPMG understand the new realities of today's energy industry and can help your business prepare for the future. Visit the KPMG website or click on the link in today's show notes to learn more. And now back to my conversation with Adi Bashyam from Bloomberg Neff. You talked about what's expected from Treasury and, and IRS. So let's step back a second. So you and the team kind of have your perspective on maybe what we call an ideal framework. So what is Bloomberg Neff's best case or, you know, recommended, if you will, framework for U.S. hydrogen guidance? This is nothing new. I mean, uh, the debate around how hydrogen from electricity needs to be, uh, grid electricity in particular, needs to be produced and be called green is something that has been debated in Europe for the last year. And Euro uh, the European Union has settled on final rules, which offer a framework that could be repeated in the US. 
And the big question, as I mentioned, is really on how can you procure electricity from the grid and then call that clean electricity that is being used for hydrogen production. And beyond just setting an emissions threshold, there's a few criteria that need to be added on top. And I'll go through them one by one. So the first one is called additionality or new clean supply. So this criteria uh, suggests that all new demand from electrolyzers, so all the electricity demand, also needs to be met by new renewable or new clean electricity supply, rather than diverting away existing electrons on the grid from other potential use cases where they could have been used to decarbonize that sector, right? And the way to meet that would be through signing power purchase agreements with new um, electricity generators or through buying renewable energy credits and then showing that these are from new plants uh, rather than existing ones. The second major criteria would be on so-called time matching. Just by plugging an electrolyzer into the grid and running that flat out, there will be a lot of hours in the year where your actual electron comes from natural gas or coal and not the renewables that you're supposed to be procuring electricity from, which means in a lot of hours in the year, you're actually producing fossil electricity-based hydrogen, which has a much worse uh, emissions uh, profile than just producing fossil hydrogen in the first place. And for that, the most strictest requirements call for hourly matching, hourly time matching, which means that in every hour that you're generating hydrogen, that needs to be matched to renewable en energy availability on the grid as well. So renewables need to be running at the same time. Uh, and that, again, can be done through renewable energy credits, uh, showing that at this time there were uh, renewables on the grid, or through power purchase agreements uh, with multiple different assets that are generating. And lastly, there's one big criteria on so-called deliverability or geographic correlation, which really just tries to uh, limit where you need to locate your electrolyzer in re uh, relation to the renewables or the clean electricity generation so that you're not really actually causing more grid constraints. And you're not located, let's say, in Texas, but you're procuring solar electricity from California that has no way of actually being physically deliverable to the electrolyzer in Texas, right? And you're just adding to more of the grid congestion that is already a problem in Texas. Okay. Thanks for breaking that down. You know, the criteria of additionality, time matching, deliverability, that's helpful. So I know we talked about how the shutdown in the U.S. could delay the, the guidance, but that's really, we're talking about, you know, weeks or months. And this whole plan is is years long. So is there a timeline from your perspective for like optimal impl implementation and what that will look like over, I, I guess, a few years, right? Yeah, I think it's important to say that like we at Bloomberg, we looked at this in a lot of detail. We considered all the studies that have been done into in this space. We came to the conclusion that you probably need very strict requirements over time to be, really make sure that the hydrogen that you're producing from grid electricity is clean. The problem is that some of these criteria can't happen from the start because some of the technology to actually prove hourly matching, for example, isn't widely available. So there is probably what, what needs to happen is a phase in of, of all of this, right? So what we have argued for is that you start with additionality on new clean supply requirements from the start, but where you give some sort of leeways by uh, not requiring the renewable or clean electricity source to come online at the same time. So it can come online maybe three years before and three years after. So there, you account for different delays in the renewables coming online. There's issues with interconnection, which delay uh, renewable energy projects to actually come online. As long as you have contracted with that uh, renewable energy source, you should be fine. And that window should narrow over time. The second point where we've argued for a phase in of implementation is something I mentioned already is on uh, hourly matching. There is already a way to show that you're procuring hourly uh, electricity uh, from renewables. Um, that's available in tracking systems like in PJM, 
but it's not widely available on a federal level yet. And there's startups trying to look into how to prove uh, and give hourly certificates that prove a renewable energy was generated in that, in that same hour, right? But for this to become widely available, we think there's a few years that are needed. That's why we argued from 2027 to phase in hourly matching, start with monthly matching, and then phase in hourly matching over time through that. What that phase in period also allows is, if you think about a hydrogen project today, we think a hydrogen project needs about five years from the conception and the first feasibility studies to actually becoming operational. So why we argue for 2027 is that if you start with, uh, with um, hourly matching from next year, for example, there's projects that are close to an investment decision today, which would suddenly need to go back to the drawing board and redesign the project to be able to comply with hourly matching, which would actually delay a, a bunch of projects. And we probably need some of these learnings from the early projects to actually figure out if the technology works as, as intended. But if you start with hourly matching from 2027 and tell everybody that it's happening in 2027, there's projects today that will only come online in 2027 or later and are currently being designed, which are able to take into account all of these criteria on hourly matching and so on, and should be able to match uh, on an hourly basis by 2027. On the deliverability aspect, that we think that should be implemented from the start. Um, we think electrolyzers need to locate as close as possible to the renewable electricity source to avoid grid congestion. In the beginning, you can do that on a transmission zone level. Over time, um, what really needs to happen is some grid scale planning with both the grid operator and the hydrogen producer to locate electrolyzers in locations where it's actually beneficial to the grid to have electrolyzers rather than anywhere. Right. And that's what this all needs to move towards long term. Are there any other factors to consider? I know the European Union's done some things on this topic and even here in the U.S., like the political headwinds. Right. We talked about the guidance might be delayed a little bit by a shutdown. But over the years, there could be, you know, a change of administration, you know, state by state. We've seen some of the other IRA incentives widely embraced in some states and kind of ignored in others. So what are some other headwinds, be it political or you know, trying to keep up with other regions around the world. Absolutely. I mean, um, the lobbying efforts that have been arguing for looser uh, restrictions on additionality, time matching, and so on, have really tried to focus on the competitiveness of the U.S. Of, or of U.S. hydrogen. Because one thing is clear, additionality, hourly matching, and all of that will slightly raise costs of production for sure. So it, it definitely becomes more costly to do so. That shouldn't preclude like strict requirements because in the end, what you want is low emissions hydrogen production. And if cost is an issue, then more uh, policy support needs to come in to be able to close that cost gap. The other thing to consider is that Europe already has implemented similar requirements. And that if you want to be competitive on a global scale and some US companies are now looking at exporting to Europe, uh, producing hydrogen domestically, converting that to something like ammonia, exporting that to Europe because Europe is this huge energy consumer then you need to meet European criteria anyway on renewable hydrogen production or clean hydrogen production. So in, in that sense, it almost doesn't matter to some extent for exporters of hydrogen from the U.S. what U.S. rules are as long as they want to export to uh, Europe or other markets that have similar criteria. That's one thing to consider. The next thing is like there is a very solid argument to be made that uh, the U.S. might need stricter rules on clean hydrogen production than other, other places in the world. And that's because the U.S. doesn't have an emissions trading scheme or any carbon pricing on a federal level that would reduce power sector emissions over time anyway. The EU has that. There's also no such thing as a clean energy mandate on a federal level. There's portfolio standards, but there's no clean energy mandate on a federal level that uh, account for additional electricity demand from hydrogen 
um, and build out the renewables uh, in the absence of any additionality requirements as well. So all of these things need to be considered. Okay, one other question I want to ask you. What region does it the best right now? Is the EU rules in place the best? Are there better rules being considered, I don't know, places like Australia, something like that? Or, you know, who's kind of leading the way from your perspective? Who's, who's doing it right, or at least planning to do it right, even if the guidance isn't fully released or implemented? The EU is actually the only place in the world that has gone beyond just setting an emissions threshold to also saying, actually, you need to produce the hydrogen in a certain way to be able to call that clean hydrogen and not just uh, affect the rest of the grid and cause more emissions. So in a way, uh, the EU is really the front runner in terms of setting out uh, these criteria because no one else really has done it. And everyone's looking at the EU and seeing how they can implement it themselves. If I'm being honest, the EU rules are lax in some instances, and that's really driven by industry wanting lax rules over time. And that hourly matching in the EU is only implemented from 2030 now. So before that, it's monthly matching. Additionality is only implemented from 2028. Um, so this is relatively lax. Uh, in reality, this should have been done much earlier from an emissions perspective. Um, the argument in the EU is that you have additional guardrails like uh, emissions trading scheme, you have renewable energy deployment mandates, and so on, uh, which which is why the U.S. just needs stricter rules because it doesn't have any of those. But yeah, if you're looking for an example to copy and then amend for your potential domestic uh, use case, you're really looking at the EU as the only country who, or, or only region to have implemented any of any of this. Do you have any bold predictions about how this all plays out? I think one thing is becoming clear. Um, despite a lot of efforts to not implement any criteria on hydrogen production, like additionality or time matching, I think if you want to be able to compete on a global level, the U.S. needs to implement these three criteria, additionality, time matching, and deliverability, for sure. The debate is really on how when they're being phased in, like the timeline, and the debate is really on how strict they are. And uh, at this point, I would say you would we would likely see from the U.S. something with a phase-in of, of these requirements, probably moving to at least monthly or hourly matching over time, and with some additionality requirements over time, and maybe with some loopholes and leeways uh, along the way. And maybe it's a bit laxer than in Europe, but at this point, I would believe that all these criteria will be implemented. Okay. Well, Adi, obviously, we're all going to be kind of waiting to see how that guidance takes shape and when it comes out from uh, IRS and Treasury. But I appreciate your insights and uh, I'll steer everyone to the piece. Obviously, we're talking about something that BNF put out. We'll provide a link to that in the show notes. But thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, KPMG. Thank you all for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe or follow this show on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, please be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues. Have a great day.